0: The title of this series is Joyful, Joyful, the Christ-like mind that brings about Christian living. So if you have your Bibles, just go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Last week at the beginning of the letter to the church at Philippi, we saw... That Paul, we, we saw Paul's opening greeting to the church there And his deep love for the church that was there We saw that Paul thanked the church for their partnership in the gospel And for their focus on gospel ministry So as we continue this morning, Paul is going to move from that greeting To now he's going to begin to share with the Philippian church The things which have been going on in his own life The title for today's message is Turning Trials into triumph. Turning trials into triumph. You join me in Philippians chapter one. I'm gonna read verses twelve through twenty. Philippians chapter one, starting in verse twelve, the Bible says, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palaces and in all other places. And many of the brethren of the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. Whether it may be my life or my death. If you would, just bow your head me a little prayer before we get started. Yeah. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day you've given to us, Lord. Thank you for the freedom and the opportunity to meet and yeah. gather together as a simple body of believers, Lord. I pray, Lord, that as we work through this text this morning, that you would challenge us and convict us. And the truths of your word would come alive in our own lives, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross. I pray that Christ would be exalted and that I would be made small, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would give me clarity of speech, that you would open the hearts and the minds of those who sit in here this morning, Lord, that you would bless the message. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. The Christian life is full of paradoxes. We find rest. Under a yoke. We reign by serving. We are made great by becoming small. We are exalted when we humble ourselves. We are made free by becoming bondservants. We triumph through defeat. And the one that I believe oftentimes is the most hard for us to grip of, to, to get a grip of, is that oftentimes, as Joseph said in Genesis chapter 50, that the things in our life, the circumstances we faced, that what the enemy means for evil, God means for good. That for the quick, that for the Christian, the things which appear dark and dreary often are used by God for our benefit. The Apostle Paul understood this truth as he penned the words of Romans 8.28. In Romans 8.28, the Apostle Paul tells us that all things, all things work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The great gospel singer Marvin Sapp said it this way. He said, I thank you for it all. The good, bad, ugly, great, and small. He said, the times of victory and times when I fall. You see, Marvin Sapp understood what the apostle Paul wrote, that no matter our circumstances in life, we can be thankful and hopeful as a child of God knowing that he is in control and that things ultimately will work out for our good I want you to understand though that the words of Romans 828 were not just mere lip service written by the Apostle Paul but rather this was a truth that the Apostle Paul had per- personally lived out in his own life as we look at our text this morning in verses 12 through 20 I wanted to see through of the Apostle Paul how we can find good and bad joy and sorrow and how we can triumph over our trials look at verse 12 In verse 12 we see that the enemy tried to silence Paul's ministry in verse 12 Paul begins by saying I want you to know brothers that the things which have happened to me See, the Apostle Paul was no stranger to suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gave us some of the suffering that he had sustained himself. In verses 24 through 27, the Apostle Paul says, he says, From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, and journeys often in perils, of water and perils of robbers and perils of my own countrymen and perils of the Gentiles and perils in the city and perils in the wilderness and perils in the sea and perils among false brethren and weariness and toil and sleeplessness often and hunger and thirst and fast often and cold and nakedness. So you remember Paul is writing to the church At Philippi, a church that he had a strong bond with, a deep relationship. And the Apostle Paul knows that the church there is keeping up with these things that are going on in his life. They are witnessing and have heard about the sufferings and the the trials that Paul has gone through. And so Paul begins this letter after he greets them by saying, listen, I know that you've heard about the things which have happened to me, but don't worry. He says, don't fret. Why? Why? Because of the trials that he had been through helped to spread the gospel. He says, I should, uh, but I would, you should understand brethren that the things which happened to me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Because what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. No doubt the Jews had Paul imprisoned, hoping that it would stop him from sharing the gospel message. Now, in change, they figured that the Apostle Paul would no longer be able to go on these missionary journeys and travel to these different areas sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. They thought that this would be able to stop the evangelization, the ministry that the Apostle Paul had. But Paul tells the church at Philippi what they tried to stop God expanded. He says, Because of my change, the gospel has now gone to areas, it has now gone farther than it ever would have without them. The word furtherance, Paul says that the gospel was further. The word furtherance here is a Greek military term, which means pioneer advance. And basically what that is, is that it is the army engineers who would go before the rest of the military to open the way to new territory. So what Paul is saying is that instead of finding himself confined as a prisoner, Paul discovers that the circumstances he's in has pioneered, advanced the gospel, has opened up new areas of ministry. In verse 13, Paul says that because of his chains, the whole palace or the praetorium or the palace guard knew that his chains were in Christ. You see, the condition of Paul's imprisonment were unusual. Many believe that Paul, when he, writ- when he wrote the book of Philippians, remember last week I told you that this is one of four of Paul's prison epistles, letters that he wrote from jail, right? So many believe that when he wrote these, that he was under Roman imprisonment. But he was not put in prison with other criminals because the Apostle Paul had not broken or went against any of the Roman laws, but rather he was put on Roman house arrest. In the, books of, in the book of Acts, in chapter 28, we see the conditions of Paul's imprisonment at Rome. Acts 28, 16, Luke says, when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Now, I don't know if you do this or not, but during biblical days, they didn't have electronic ankle monitors for house arrest, okay? So what they did was they would take a shackle and put it on your ankle, and then they would take the other half of that shackle and would tie you to a prison guard. So the Apostle Paul would have had his ankle chained to a Roman guard twenty-four-seven. And Roman custom said that every six hours these guards would would change; they would switch shifts every six hours. So throughout the course of a day, the Apostle Paul would have had. Four Roman guards chained to his ankle, right? Because of this, Paul had a captive audience to be able to share the gospel. This was an audience he most likely would have never been able to influence, and he never would have had access to. But Paul says, because of my imprisonment, because I am in these chains, I am now able to share the gospel with in, in, in new areas with new people. Not only does he share the gospel, but Paul tells the Philippians later in Philippians 4.22 that many of these imperial guard became Christians. In chapter 4.22, Paul, as he's ending his letter, he's sending out his exit greeting. And Paul says, all the saints greet you, but especially those who were of Caesar's household. You see, the enemy meant to stop Paul's ministry, to silence the furtherance of the gospel, but they just gave him another area of ministry. You know, the apostle Paul had never done prison ministry before, but now he had the perfect opportunity. Paul wanted to go to Rome as a preacher, but instead he went as a prisoner. Yet he saw this as means to share Christ. Paul didn't find joy in ideal circumstances. He found his joy in winning others to Christ, Listen, we, Paul could have very easily, this was not the first time Paul had been in prison, he had constantly been persecuted. He could have very easily, when he wrote to his friends at Philippi, said, listen guys, help me, I need you to, to write to the Roman officials, I need you to get me out of prison. But instead, Paul says, no, don't help me, rejoice with me because of my imprisonment, because of my chains, the gospel has been furthered. You know, while many of us will probably never be falsely imprisoned, we will go through and be put in circumstances that are less than ideal. We'll deal with suffering and heartache and sickness. End up places where we never thought that we would be and You know, maybe the reason that God has you in the season that you're in, we're all in different seasons of life, and I'm sure we all have something that we can look at and say, man, this is just not good. But rather than looking at it for the bad, maybe we should do like the Apostle Paul and See, how can we use it to exalt Christ? How can we use the season that we're in? How can we use the circumstances that seem dark and dreary to glorify God? You know, whether that's in the hospital, maybe you're going through sickness and you're in the hospital. Maybe God's put you there to be able to share the love of Christ with somebody who never would have heard it before. Maybe that's at your workplace. Maybe that's at school. I don't know where it is. You know the circumstances of your life. And rather than looking at the bad and the dreary, start to look at how can I use this to advance the gospel? And then in verse 14, Paul tells us that not only was he able to personally witness, but because Christians were watching him, because Christians saw the testimony of Paul, rather than being intimidated by his chains, they were emboldened to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without fear. Listen, this wasn't supposed to happen. Just like they tried to chain Paul. In order to stop him from preaching himself, they no doubt would have thought that by Paul's imprisonment, by Paul's chains, that the people watching him would have stopped as well. Right? When you want to stop a movement, you stop the leader. And while the Jewish and Roman leaders no doubt thought that by imprisoning Paul that they would extinguish the gospel fire, what we see is contrary to that in verse 14, what we see is that. Rather, the other believers that were watching what Paul was doing were emboldened and there was kindle added to the gospel fire. Listen, boldness is contagious. Boldness is contagious. When we are bold for Christ, others are encouraged to do the same. When you proclaim to be a Christian to the outside world, they are constantly watching you they're constantly seeing how are you going to react to this situation how are you going to maintain your joy how are you going to continue it as these Romans citizens and these Christian converts that were in Rome watched Paul they saw that Paul had something that was the real deal and because of that they were encouraged because of that they said listen even if it means persecution I want what he has and, you know, a challenge for all of us is that even if maybe there's not somebody from the outside that's watching you, those of us that have families, your family is watching you. Your children are watching you. Your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, they're looking to see how mom and dad, how aunt and uncle, how grandma and grandpa respond to the circumstances that are put in front of them. Do they waver in their faith or do they stand strong because of Christ? As we then move on to verses 15 through, six, through 17, we see that when the enemy realized that he could not silence Paul's ministry, he tried to sour his joy. Look at 15 through 17 with me. It says, some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds But the other of love, knowing that I set for the defense of the gospel. While there were many people who were emboldened to preach Christ through the witness and testimony of Paul, sadly there were some that did so with the wrong motive. Paul's difficulty spawned missionary zeal, which, which was based on two different types of motives. There was one who shared the gospel out of selfishness, and there was one that shared the gospel out of goodwill. Paul said that one group preached Christ because they knew that Paul was limited. They knew that Paul could only do so much now, chained in prison, and so they wanted to carry that mantle. But then he says there's another group that saw Paul's imprisonment as the means to gain popularity, as the means to gain a following. They saw the the following that Paul had. They saw the platform that Paul have built and they said, listen, now that he's out the way, it's time for us to sweep in and it's time for us to get that fame. It's time for us to get that notoriety. They tried to hijack the moment and rather than building Christ, they tried to build themselves. However, Paul tells us that although there were two different motives, they both preached the good news of Jesus Christ. They both preached the The gospel message, the true gospel message. Before I move on, I just want to park here for a minute and challenge us and remind us that there are times when we can have the right message, but the wrong motive. I'm sure that many of us in here can think of pastors and ministries that it seems like all they want to do is build themselves up. All they want to do is use the name of Christ for their glory, use the name of Christ for monetary gain. But rather than looking at others, I want us to ask ourselves the question, why do I do ministry? Why do I serve? First off, I want to say that you can only ask this question if you are actively serving. Listen, all Christians are called to serve. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a gift. Listen, all of us are given a spiritual gift when we are brought into the body. He says, as each one receives one of those gifts, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So first off, all, if you aren't serving, if you're not involved in some type of ministry, then start. And then for those of you that are serving, ask God what your motivation is for ministry. Not just vocational ministry, not just standing behind a pulpit, but I'm talking about all of us. We all minister. We're all in ministry when we are actively serving the body. What's your reason for teaching a children's class? What's your reason for wanting to see on the worship team? What is your reason for greeting people in the morning? What is your reason for cutting the grass? Are you cutting the yard because you want to be seen? Or are you cutting the yard because you truly want to serve? Do you want people as you serve and as you partake in the ministries of the church? Are you thinking in the back of your mind, man, I wish people could see all that I'm doing. Look at what I'm doing. I've I've, I've, I've done this and I've done that. They, they surely have to see that I'm serious about God. Are you singing, teaching, greeting, whatever it may be? Are you cleaning the building in order to satisfy your own pleasures? Or are you doing it because you find pleasure in serving God? You want to know whether or not you minister with envy and strife? How do you respond? How do you react with other Christians or other ministries seem to be having more success than yours. When others get recognition and it seems like nobody is recognizing you or seeing all that you're doing, how do you respond to that? And as you evaluate your own heart and ask God to search you, the answer becomes obvious. Because if there is envy and strife in your heart, you may be serving for the wrong Reasons. There's a fable that Satan's agents were failing in various attempts to draw into sin a holy man that lived as a hermit in the northern desert of Africa. After every attempt, there was failure to draw this man into sin. So Satan, annoyed by their incompetence, says, listen, I'm going to do it myself. Satan says, The reason you have failed is that your methods are too crude for one such as this. He then approaches the, approaches the man with great care and he whispers softly into this man's ear. And he says, Your brother has just been made Bishop of Alexandria. Instantly, the holy man's face turns into a scowl, and Satan realized that he had been successful. Envy, said Satan, is often our best weapon against those who seek holiness. Listen, ministry is not about building a platform. It's about building the kingdom. Paul said these evangelists shared Christ, hoping to add affliction to his chains. They wanted to cause Paul trouble. They wanted to distress Paul, to sour his joy, to bring pain to his heart. They figured that Paul would be upset seeing how they came in and stole all of his followers. But then as we come to verse 18, we find that the opposite of what was intended became true. Look at verse 18 with me. Paul says, Paul says in verse 18, What then? Now what? There's there's those who are Evangelize with the wrong motive, what does that mean for me? He says, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth. That word pretense means putting on an act, it means that it's fake. So, Paul says, whether there's people that are evangelizing just for the sake of putting on an act, or there are people that are sharing Christ out of truth because of a true love for God. He says, Christ is preached, and therein I rejoice. He says, what you meant to use to harm and discourage me, I am able to find joy in. And why, once again, is Paul able to find joy in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of suffering? Paul is able to find joy to see the light in the middle of the darkness because Christ is exalted. Listen to me, Paul cared more about Christ than his own glory. George Whitfield, the influential evangelist of the Great Awakening, decided to hand the reins of the Methodist movement over to John Wesley. John Wesley and George Whitfield both led separate sects of the Methodist Union, and they had a lot of strong disagreements. And Whitfield's followers urged him to take back his position of leadership, they warned him that if he let Wesley have the Methodist leadership, that Whitfield's name would be forgotten. To which Whitfield told them, my name, let the name of Whitfield perish, if only the name of Christ be glorified. Let my name perish as long as Christ is glorified. Listen, Paul says there's preachers who I may not agree with. There's preachers who have bad motives. There's preachers who are slandering my name that are trying to bring pain to my life. Listen, he says there's preachers that are in it for the wrong reason, but as long as they are preaching the gospel message, as long as they're preaching the true Orthodox message of Christ, not only am I not gonna work them as enemies, but I am going to rejoice. Kind of rejoice. Listen, Paul's celebration of gospel truth overrides his sorrow at defective methods. Now I want you to know that there is a difference between what Paul is speaking with these people and false teachers. Paul clearly lays out in Galatians and 1 Timothy and other books of the Bible that he has a deep hatred for false teachers. But the problem is that oftentimes we label false teachers as somebody that we just don't like. And what Paul says a false teacher is is somebody that goes against the orthodox beliefs of Scripture, that goes contrary to what the gospel says. A false teacher to Paul is somebody who teaches something other than salvation by faith alone in Christ. And Paul says because these aren't False teachers in that mode in that in that sense of the word. He says they have the wrong motive, but they're not false teachers, so therefore I will rejoice. Then lastly, as you look at verses 19 through 20, you see that the enemy tried to stop Paul's witness. First, we see that the enemy tried to silence his ministry. He had Paul Imprisoned, yet Paul says, because of his chains, the gospel was furthered. The enemy tried to sour his joy. He brought about new preachers and evangelists that were in it for the wrong reasons. And then, lastly, in 19 through 20, the enemy tries to stop his witness. Paul, up to this point in verse 18, has chosen to rejoice. And the present, whenever the gospel advances, now Paul chooses to rejoice as he faces an unknown future. At the end of verse 18, the end of verse 18 really goes into the beginning of verse 19. Paul says, I rejoice, and he says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of The Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Awaiting trial in Rome. Remember, Paul is not just serving out a prison sentence, but Paul is Sitting in prison, trying to find out what is going to become of him. So awaiting his trial in Rome, Paul understands the uncertainty of his circumstances. Paul knew that there was a possibility that he could be released. And we'll look next week more into that possibility. But Paul also knew that there was a possibility that his imprisonment could lead to death. If they could silence, or if they couldn't silence his ministry or sour his joy, certainly death would be the only thing that would stop the apostle Paul. Yet, Paul remained joyful through the idea of death as long as the Lord was glorified. Paul says that through the prayers of the Philippian church and the spirit of Jesus Christ, that he knows that whatever happens is going to accomplish God's will for his life. Paul is joyful in knowing that although his circumstances are uncertain, that Christ will be magnified no matter how it ends. Listen, Paul understood that he could not lose. He couldn't lose. No matter what happened, his witness cannot be stopped. Paul says, listen, if, if I die for the sake of the gospel, Christ will. Will be magnified. Paul knew that if he died as a martyr, there would be those behind him that would continue to take up the mantle, that would continue to be emboldened by his witness, that would carry on the gospel flame. But he also knew that if he was released, that Christ would be magnified. One, Christ would be magnified just through Paul again being released in prison. But Christ would be magnified because Paul knew as soon as he got out of prison, he was getting right back. On mission as I look at these words that Paul says in the heart of Paul I'm challenged by the thought is Christ magnified through me in life and would Christ be magnified through me in death You know the question what am I known for as people View my life as people view my walk with the Lord, as they see me, what is the first thing that comes to their mind? Not what do I think about myself, but what do others think about me? Not only what do others think about me here and now, but as I draw my last breath, what will be the legacy that I leave behind? Will Christ, will Christ continue to be magnified? in the wake of my death. As I leave this verse, will my legacy be in, man, he did really well with his money. Will my legacy be in, he was a great father, which is a good thing, but is that the legacy you want to leave? Will my legacy be, he did really good at his job, or maybe my legacy will be, he was an addict. He was an alcoholic, he was abusive. What is my legacy going to be as I draw my last breath? Will I be remembered for all those things, or will I be remembered because of my love and passion and dedication to Christ? You know, when you think of the name Apostle Paul, when you think of the name Charles Spurgeon, When you think of the name Elizabeth Elliot or Lottie Moon or you think of the name Billy Graham or even recently it just passed Charles Stanley. What are the thoughts that come to your mind? No doubt you think of them and you think of the life that they lived, devoted and dedicated to Christ. And even though they have passed from this life to the next, as you remember them, you remember what they did for the sake of the gospel. And so what am I doing to make sure that I leave a legacy? What am I doing to make sure that my life is an example? That, that, that my life, when people see me, they don't see me, but they see Christ in me. Listen, we all face tough times and tribulations in life. It's a part of life. And if you say, well, not me, if that is true, then just keep on living. But the question at hand is when you face these trials, when you face these uncertainties in life, how do you turn them into triumph? How do you find joy in the midst of your suffering? And the answer is this. It's the answer that the Apostle Paul held to and the answer that is true for us today, that the way to triumph over your trials is through the Christ-centered, singular mind. When you have a singular mind that constantly thinks about the things of Christ, you look at your circumstances as God given opportunities for the furtherance of the gospel. And you rejoice at what God is going to do instead of complaining about what God did not do. My question for you is where is your joy this morning? Is your joy in your circumstances? Have you lost your joy because of a diagnosis from the doctor? Have you lost your joy because of a relationship gone bad? Have you lost your joy because you have more bills than you have money? (coughs) Listen, Paul's circumstances were grim. Paul was in prison. Paul was opposed. Paul was facing death. However, the apostle Paul remained joyful. Because his joy was not found in his circumstances, but rather his joy was found in Christ. You will turn your trials into triumph when Christ becomes bigger than your circumstances. Listen, because what the enemy means for evil, God means for good. We had bow, eyes closed, the worship team come up. Dear Father, Lord, I once again thank you for the opportunity to open your word. May I pray, Lord.